This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the U.S., Bryce Zabel. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Need to Know. We're coming to you globally today. I'm Bryce Zabel. I'm up north of Los Angeles. And let me bring in my partner in crime here, Ross Coltart, who is somewhere south of Sydney. How you doing, Roscoe? G'day from Down Under. How are you, Bryce? I, I see you've been gallivanting around UFO conferences the last week. It's been a busy last month uh, for me, but you're right. Yeah, last week I was at the um, International UFO Congress, which uh, was in Mesa, Arizona this week, put on by Karen Brard and Alejandro Rojas. And uh, lots of people there, uh, a lot of good information uh, being exchanged. And then I also, right after that, uh, did the Q&A here in Los Angeles at LA Live with James Fox over his new uh, Moment of Contact movie. So it's been a busy time. Now, you gave a speech, I understand, at the Congress, uh, along with uh, a number of other panelists, on the issue of estimate of the situation, will 2023 sizzle or fizzle? What did you decide? Well, you know, uh, you and I have talked about this enough. You probably already know all this. Uh, in fact, we talked about it in the last episode. I feel like uh, we're going to get some sizzle here. I just, everything I hear from my sources and that you seem to hear from your sources and uh, that the way people are talking seems to be that there are some surprises ahead. And I'm going to, if I had to put my chips on the table and go all in on either, either one, I'd go in on sizzle over fizzle. Well, we do know, my friend, that uh, as of late last year, the National Defense Authorization Act of the United States Congress required that no later than the 31st of October 2022 and annually for the next four years on, the director shall, in consultation with the Secretary of Defense, submit to the appropriate congressional committees a report on unidentified oh. aerial phenomena. So the big question is, what is that report going well, to say? You are really uh, singing from my prayer book, my friend, because, uh, you know, I've been riding this train since July when they, when we first were talking about it. We got the calendar out and said October 31st is when they'll put it out because that's the last one they had to put out. They could put it out on as late as June 25th, 2021, and that's the day they put it out. So I think we can bet for October 31st. And uh, I, a couple of comments. One, that's Halloween. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, nice surprise there. And maybe we'll get candy as well. Who knows? And then the, the second uh, part of that is, of course, that 
it is eight days before the U.S. midterms. So if something actually major comes out in that, uh, it could be uh, it could be political. It could get into various debates. I mean, certainly some of the it candidates could be who, the October surprise. Well, Bryce, that's as what, you wisely speculated. That is the train I've been riding on, my friend. So you actually have heard from a few people who. Uh, you know, because listen, up until now, whenever I start blathering on about the October surprise, I get told by people, hey, settle down, settle down. You know, maybe they'll postpone it. It might not be that big a deal and et cetera. And I keep thinking, well, given where they were in the last one from June 25th of 2021, the October 31st, 2022 is going to have to advance that debate somewhat. And I keep thinking it could have something that could be kind of memorable in it. What, do, what are you hearing? Well, mate, frankly, a dead rat, a flaccid dead rat would be better than what was delivered in June 2021. I mean, really, it wasn't much. But I, I, I am actually hearing that things could be interesting at the end of this month, that there may be something coming up. But look, I have to admit, I've been wavering between optimism and dark pessimism recently. Uh, I'm, I'm very worried that because of the international situation, the deteriorating economic situation. There are so many things coming on the agenda that are distracting our opinion leaders in Congress from making a, a decision about what to do as far as congressional hearings go. And I'm still, I suppose, optimistic, but I err to the belief that there are forces that are incredibly powerful who are going to try and, yes, there will be whistleblowers, but they're going to try and keep it all in camera, in private committee in the Congress. And also, as our friend Chris Sharp has pointed out in an article that he did for his Liberation Times and the Daily Mail on the last week or so, um, there have already been hearings. You know, there are already sure. witnesses who've come forward. And Chris is punting in his article, basically saying that he thinks, uh, from what he's hearing from his sources, that um, we are talking about revelations of possible crash retrievals and that there might, in fact, be admissions being made, if not already made, about crash retrievals and back engineering programs. So I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic for the end of this month. That jives with some of what I'm hearing. And I just want to differentiate. When you said you were, you thought the June 25th, 2021 report that was released was not such a big deal, um, I, I I want to make clear something. There was a May 17th of 2022 hearing that I for sure uh, agree with you was a complete flaccid piece of wet lettuce and, and not a good, uh, uh, you know, not a good indicator of where we're going. But I really do want to stand up for the June 25th, 2021 report. I've read it again recently. And while, you know, listen, I would have liked it if they would have just said, and we got a wreckage here and this happened then. And they didn't do that. But again, that report did something that was radical for the U.S. government. It, it admitted no, that they that. were real. Yeah. And no, it said, we don't make them. So I'll give you that. That is significant. And more importantly, it admitted that it could not prosaically explain the vast majority, 143 out of 144 events that they were looking at absolutely. involving mainly military sightings. So, yeah, I'll give you that. But I'm, I'm still, I guess, in the context of what you and I know about the history of the phenomenon, it does seem irksome that here we are 77 years on from the end of World War II and we're still arguing about some pretty silly things oh. about whether or not the Congress should be disclosing it. So I'm, I'm looking in terms of the, the last century, frankly, and what really is known on the public record in official documents 
documents and in historical records and how there is this cognitive dissonance between what we know from the history and and what's being admitted. Why has it taken so long? What do they know that they don't want to reveal? This is why we're such good friends, because I love anybody that can drop the the line cognitive dissonance in a (laughs) sentence. And I love that because it is cognitive dissonance. It's where you know something to be true, but you're actually being told that it's not. And and you just can't square that thing. Listen, I want to just go back for a moment to the IUFOC where I spoke last week that we started talking about. There were a lot of people there that were you know, kind of interesting people. Brian Bender from Politico, uh, Alejandro Rojas, Micah Hanks from The Debrief, uh, Michael Masters um, was there. Uh, So was uh, John Ramirez, Travis Walton, David Marler, James Fox, Len Katai. I mean, a lot of interesting people. And the thing that I took away from it, or two things. One, attendance was way down. And I think that's because the, um, the, pandemic has just gotten people out of the habit of getting out of the house. So it's going to take some rebuilding for them. They've had to be virtual the last two years. But I thought there was a lot of energy in the rooms that were there because people know that we're on the fifth anniversary uh, in two months of that New York Times reporting that kind of, you know, put us all out there and got us going. So I found a lot of energy there. And I, I think that a lot of people are, are very similar to what you and I are doing. We, we, we know enough to feel that there is the possibility of huge change, radical change. And at the same time, we hear the rumblings that there is a pushback going on among the people who actually are you know, running uh, the situation. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a tough choice for everybody. But again, there is reason for some optimism. And that's kind of what I want to put out here today. There's another anniversary too. It's not just the fifth anniversary of the New York Times 2017 story coming up, but it's also coming up to the, well, actually it's the 20th anniversary of the Admiral Wilson memo, the EWD notes, the purported meeting between Admiral Tom Wilson of the DIA, formerly of the DIA, and Dr. Eric Davis in a car park outside EG&G's headquarters in Las Vegas. Um, did it happen? We're going to get more into that a bit later, aren't we, Bryce? It's, it's, it's like a spy novel, the Wilson Davis memo. We keep talking about it. Now, I have to say, I was on a panel that was um, moderated by Brian Bender of Politico, and um, it had uh, Alejandro and Micah Hanks and myself and Michael Masters on. And the most contentious part of that panel was uh, Brian asking everybody what they thought about the Wilson Davis memo. Brian uh, thought it was a uh, fake. Uh, Alejandro thought, he was skeptical. Um, so there, there was uh, some difference of opinion on it. I think there's a lot to it. And that's why, uh, folks, in, a, in the next segment, we're going to be talking about it. In fact, Ross, you and I are going to do a dramatic interp of it because it's been accused of reading like a screenplay sometimes. So we feel like if it reads like a screenplay, maybe a couple of hack actors like us <laughs> should, should try to talk about it. Listen, there's just a little more housekeeping we should do um, while we're you know, while we're in our first uh, uh, segment here, just because there's so many interesting things that are going on right now. Um, our, our mutual friend, Ben Hansen, has broken a story about the so-called racetrack UFOs. And that, those are UFOs that have been seen by numerous uh, commercial pilots in August of, uh, of this year. And he's, uh, he's done a deep dive into it. The debrief just today did their own article talking about it. And so uh, just hats off to Ben for some you know, good, solid um, 
investigative reporting. We like to hear that. And, and, and um, can I can I also yeah, mention well before we go on from that one? Can I also mention it's very significant what Ben's revealed because one of the things that I think his investigation highlights is that there's whilst there's now a requirement that mandates that military pilots come forward with their sightings of UAPs, there's no such equivalent with commercial pilots. And so what I thought was really heartening was that um, Ryan Graves, our mutual friend, the ex FA eighteen pilot, yeah. who we interviewed a few weeks ago. Um, he's part of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and it has established three committees to study UAPs and how these incursions are affecting pilot and passenger safety and to coordinate with government agencies and international researchers. And so it's actually quite a, an exciting development that a reputable international body like the AIAA, which is a peak organisation for aeronautics and astronautics, is actually in engaging and taking this issue seriously. And I, I think it's only to be applauded. And Ryan's working with Ravi uh, Koparapu, a planetary scientist at NASA, and um, they're damn serious about getting to the bottom of this and collecting data, which I think is an absolutely key issue. It, it, it not only is it key, Ross, but what I like about that story and uh, some of the other organizations from the Galileo Project to the Enigma folks and to, uh, you know, just all of the things that we've been talking about, that world, that's part of the reason for my optimism. It is that we no longer must wait only for the government or any government to tell us something about what's real. Uh, we can do a lot of this research for ourselves. And so, for example, these commercial pilots and the racetrack UFO situation, some of them are still worried about stigma. They're still worried that if they could even find somebody to report this to, that they would be uh, made fun of or possibly grounded. And, you know, I think it's 2022. It's a little late in the game to be making our commercial pilots afraid to tell people about things that they actually see with their own eyes and with their own equipment. So uh, hopefully we're going to be able to put those kind of things to bed. And, now um, we would be we would be remiss, Bryce, in not acknowledging our friend and colleague uh, James Fox's yeah, fantastic yes. uh, premiere of Moment of Contact, which I think you were the co-host of. You actually interviewed James on right. stage, didn't you? Can you tell us I, a bit about that? Thank you for bringing that up. It's uh, James was not only at the IUFOC, uh, but then as soon as I left that, uh, he had the uh, world premiere of his Moment of Contact film uh, here in Los Angeles at the LA Live Regal uh, Theater, which is a lovely, impressive, giant uh, theater. And it was really astonishing to watch his film, which I had seen as you had uh, on our computers at home. This one was you know, gigantic. I mean, it was like watching it on an IMAX, really, really stellar. And um, yeah, I did. I introduced James who introduced his film and then the film came on. And then afterwards we did uh, the Q&A. And what I thought was fun about the Q&A is that a lot of times in Hollywood, the studios, when they have a movie come out, will just have, you know, somebody who maybe has seen the movie, doesn't really know that much about it, certainly isn't there to pull anything really radical out of anybody other than some stories from the set. Instead, James got me. And I've seen the film twice, and I know a few things about it, and I thought it was very interesting to sit down with him and, and pull apart some of the, the interesting things that are in it. For those of you who don't know, uh, Moment of Contact is James's passion, uh, James Fox's passion project. It, it deals with the Virginia uh, UFO 
crash and retrieval with bodies and all of that in Virginia, Brazil in 1996, two years after the, uh, you know, the case in, uh, is it Rwanda? Is not Rwanda. Uh, Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, excuse me. Yeah. So uh, a fascinating case. And, and James literally went to Brazil and talked to all the witnesses. And uh, it literally is, as the film suggests, the uh, Roswell of Brazil. So it was fascinating for him to do it because it literally proves the point of why you and I do this podcast. Okay. You and I are doing it. You're in Australia and I'm here in the United States. And yeah, we have some technical issues from time to time because we're trying to do a, a streaming podcast. But the, the underlying reality of what we're trying to do is to say, this isn't a United States problem and the United States is not in charge of it. Uh, the, the world is dealing with this issue right now. And uh, that includes your country and it includes Brazil. And um, anyway, for people that would uh, like to know a little bit more about it, it's a good watch. It's not in theaters. It's streaming. It's called Moment of Contact. It's the James Fox follow-up to his brilliant film, The Phenomenon. Now, coming up next on Need to Know, we finally delve into the intriguing mystery of the so-called EWD notes, the Admiral Wilson memo. We go Broadway. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Ah, hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome back to Need to Know. Now, as Bryce mentioned at the UFO Congress, one of the issues that came up in the panel that he was a co-panelist on is the Admiral Wilson memo. And for those of us who aren't aware of this document, it's an alleged record of a conversation that took place between Dr. Eric Davis, a renowned and well-respected aerospace um, physicist uh, who works for the Aerospace Corporation now, and Admiral Tom Wilson, who was at the time the immediate past former director of the Defence Intelligence Agency of the United States Defence Department. And in that memo, there are recorded alleged transcripts of the most extraordinary conversation. And the big issue that Bryce and I have been discussing for many, many moons is just how real is that document? Because a lot of people, of course, have suggested, haven't they, Bryce, that this is just a screenplay. And I think even our friend Brian Bender was sceptical at the conference you were at last weekend, suggesting that it, you know, it really does. It does read a little bit like a screenplay. 
you know, before we get deeper into it, let me ask a couple of questions here that maybe you know the answer to. And I honestly, I, in preparation for this uh, episode we're doing, not only did I read your fine book in plain sight and read your chapter on this, but I also read Richard Dolan's original uh, article about it, listened to him talk about it in one of his podcasts, and actually reread the memo. So I feel all tuned up, if you will. But there were two things that struck me, and I, I, I really feel we should get get to them. One is, this is these are the notes of uh, Dr. Eric Davis. And these are the most complete notes I've ever seen. And he obviously didn't take them in real time. And I know that uh, my memory uh, being what it is, I could never have done what he did here. Ross, do we know if Eric Davis has a photographic memory? Because we, I can't see how he did it. Friends of Eric have actually vouched for the fact that he does have the most extraordinary memory. But as you'll see in the course of our analysis by reading this document, yeah. I, I suspect there was a tape rolling. I suspect that oh. there was a digital recorder. So let, let me roll back okay. a little bit. Let, let, let me just, just ask you one. Uh, before you do, though, I just want to ask this other question that I feel you might know because you really researched it. What's the provenance of the chain of title? This thing was found in Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell's garage. How did it get there? Okay. Edgar Mitchell was part of the uh, National Institute of Discovery Science, which was established by uh, Robert Bigelow, the aerospace entrepreneur. And he funded, Bigelow funded uh, Edgar to be part of the scientific advisory panel for NIDS when it was doing its investigations into UAPs and, frankly, the, the paranormal at places like Skinwalker Ranch. But it all goes back a lot earlier to a meeting that took place in 1997 between Dr. Stephen Greer of the, um, uh, what does he call himself these days, the Disclosure Project, yeah. uh, a controversial figure in ufology. But I will credit Tim, he absolutely right that this meeting took place. So he turned up at the Pentagon and had a meeting with the then Deputy Director of the DIA, Admiral Tom Wilson. Uh, and... Attending that meeting was a woman called Sherry Adamiak, who was one of uh, Edgar Mitchell's co-colleagues on the Disclosure Project. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut, who probably got them in the door at the DIA because he's an astronaut and people let astronauts in the door in circumstances where they otherwise wouldn't. Um, and uh, there was also Commander Willard Miller, who was a former military colleague of um, Admiral Tom Wilson, who facilitated the introduction to the Admiral. And in that meeting, it was put by Greer to the Admiral that there were things being concealed inside the Department of Defence that he ought properly to be investigating. And if we are to believe the Admiral Wilson memo, what happened as a result of that meeting was what is detailed in the transcripts of this so-called Admiral Wilson memo, the EWD notes. And they record what Admiral Tom Wilson told, allegedly, Dr. Eric Davis in 2002, August 2002, almost 20 years ago to the day, in a car park at EG&G, the apocryphal organisation that does a lot of logistics for um, Area 51. And they allegedly sat in the back of a car in the EG&G car park in Las Vegas and had this conversation. And, and, and by the way, uh, you do an injustice to our anniversary. It wasn't August. It was October 16th 
of oh sorry uh, oh, October. You're absolutely right. This literally is the 20th anniversary week. Yeah. So uh, yeah. happy anniversary, Wilson Davis memo. And Ross <laughs> and I, we did not bake a cake uh, because neither of us are good at baking cakes, but we did get our respective documents out and highlight them. Now, admittedly, Ross, uh, last episode, I said, maybe we need to do a dramatic interpret of this thing and read it. And foolishly, we've decided to do exactly that. Um, not read the entire thing, folks, but there, it, it has been accused of reading like a screenplay, like, like we said. So um, I guess the luck of the draw is that I will be playing... <laughs> <laughs> this is so ridiculous. I'll be playing <laughs> Eric Davis uh, today. And Ross, you'll be playing Thomas Wilson. Admiral Tom Wilson. <laughs> okay. So, folks, just uh, if you've got your own, we're starting on page eight here. Um, there was a lot of stuff that Ross uh, you know, brought up earlier um, that precedes it. But this is kind of the the tone of the thing. And we just thought, you know, it might be interesting to be driving in a car or relaxing, watching your YouTube or whatever, and just sort of hear it read out loud and, and ask yourself, you know, for your own purposes, does it sound authentic? So I'm going to start with Eric Davis on page eight, who says, so what special access program compartment did you find this in? Core secret, won't say. Code name? Again, won't say. Core secret. Who was the project contractor or U.S. government agency that runs the program? An aerospace technology contractor, one of the top ones in the U.S. Who? Core secret. Can't tell. A defense contractor? Yes, the best of them. Intelligence, too? In their corporate portfolio. Give a hint. Sorry, no. What happened when you found the contractor? I made several calls end of May 97, first to Paul, Mike, and Perry, their senior Defense Department officials, to confirm I had the right contractor and program manager to talk to. Uh, did they confirm? Yeah. Then? Made three calls, end of May 1997, to the program manager, one of them conference call with security director and corporate attorney. Confusion on their part as to why I was looking for them and what I wanted from them or wanted to know about. Very testy tone from all of them. What do you mean? They were agitated about my calling, surprised by call. What you asked them? Yeah. What was that? What words? I told I read their program record in the USDAT, the Office of the Undersecretary for Defense, something or other in yeah. technology, special programs record group, and wanted to know about their crashed UFO program, what their role in that was, what they had. Also asked if they knew of MJ-12 or some such organization code relating to crashed, recovered UFO craft. Reaction on phone to that? Yes. Asked who I talked to before I called them. So I told them and they weren't happy with that answer. You mean about Perry and Paul, etc.? Oh, no, I didn't tell them I talked to those guys. Whom else do you talk to? There were the other program managers I called. You, you didn't mention that before. Thought I said something. Who were they? 
three programs who said they weren't what, who I was looking for. Four programs that referred me back to the present threesome. Why the latter? Because they were part of it in different compartments, placed in different layers of the compartment's pyramid, split up to do different things or parts of it. They're all, they're all in same records group, but their connection to each other is not obvious. Typical thing, but unusual in records. What then? I told Threesome I wanted a formal briefing, a tour, etc. Was exploiting my regulatory authority as Deputy Director DIA, Assistant Joint Chief of Staff, J2. Told them my not being briefed was oversight they needed to correct. I demanded. And by the way, I'm enjoying this so much, Ross, because... I've got the easy part. All I have to do is ask questions. But um, actually, you have still more from Thomas Wilson there. Sure. They needed to discuss this, his demand, so hung up. Got called two days later, and they said they don't want to talk on phone and arranged for face-to-face meeting at their facility. Did you go? Yes. Ten days later, mid-June or so, flew out there, met in their conference room in their secret vault. Three of them show up. The three guys with whom you had the telecom? Yes, same three. Security director, NSA, retired, a CI, counterintelligence expert, program director, corporate attorney, called themselves the Watch Committee or Gatekeepers. Why why that phrase or name? I asked. They said they were formed out of necessity to protect themselves after a near disaster in the past almost blew their cover. Something to do with an agreement that was reached with a couple of Pentagon SESs, senior executive services, overseeing SAP, special access programs in those days. We're vague about when that was. Well, what was this? Let me finish. They said years ago in the past, an audit investigation led to them, and it wasn't supposed to, nearly outed. A battle, a nasty back and forth between them and the investigator and his Pentagon chief ensued, like a tug of war for program transparency. They told me money was the issue. Their hiding out became the other issue. Some kind of threat was leveled to blow the lid off them, so they backed down and let the investigator in to complete his job. They work very hard to keep the program hidden. So what happened with that? He was officially briefed, given a tour, and shown their program. Did they show him a craft or hardware they said was alien or from a UFO? Didn't say more about that. Said that after that episode, a formal agreement was struck with Pentagon people, the Special Access Program Oversight Committee, SAPOC, to prevent this in future. Didn't want to repeat. Special criteria were established in agreement. A a special circumstance that must meet rigorous access criteria set by contractor committee. No, No U.S. government personnel are to gain access unless they meet the criteria to be administered by contractor committee, the program director, the attorney, the security director, irregardless of the tickets and position U.S. government personnel possessed. Literally, their way or the highway. So what are the criteria? I asked for that, and they refused to give an answer. I was mad. Implication is now, to me, They operate without official oversight or any justification. 
politically dangerous place to be. The threesome were concerned with whom I'd talked to at the Pentagon or elsewhere by phone, fax or email. They wanted an accounting of the conversations, concerned about new exposure. The purpose of the meeting was to tell me this. What? That they weren't going to let me in the door. Why? They said my tickets were all confirmed and valid, but I was not on the bigot list. My tickets alone weren't enough. I didn't meet the special criteria, so need-to-know authorization was not being granted. Went back and forth with them over these points, primarily with security director and attorney. By the way, just... Um... I love the fact that Need to Know makes an appearance in the documents, but enough nice of, that. of them to give us a mention, wasn't it? On, right. on you go, Thomas Wilson. Argued more, they wouldn't accept my arguments that they fell under my statutory oversight and regulatory authority as Deputy Director DIA under purview for my right to have Need to Know oversight, audit, justification issues, etc., etc. Regulatory and statutory authority as Deputy Director DIA wasn't relevant or pertinent to the nature of their program. Then they pulled out their bigot list to convince me otherwise. Several pages long, dated 1990, updated 1993. Who, who was on it? Uh, did you recognize any names? That is core secret. Willing to say that most were program employees, names and titles job titles, civilians, didn't recognize any military personnel could be there. Any politicians? No, no White House names, no president, no congressional people, no congressional staffers. Any of them in the Clinton or Bush senior administrations? No, but a handful of names were Pentagon individuals I recognized. A few from the Office of the Undersecretary Defense. What's A in OSDAT? Do you know? Uh, it's as you said. It, I don't know what the A is, but the T is technology. Defense and te uh, yeah, something in technology. One from another department, another at the S NSC, who is Pentagon SES employee. Program managers said they were not any weapons program, not any intelligence program, not any special op or logistics program. Doesn't fit these categories. I asked them what they were then. Loud groan from program manager. Security director and attorney say, it's okay to say it. Say what? Drum roll here, boys. This is big. I, 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 I don't have my special effects, but in the final edit, we can put that okay, in. Here we go. There you go. That, they were a reverse engineering program something recovered years ago in the past. Technological hardware was recovered. So I thought they meant recovered Soviet, Chinese, etc. hardware and reverse engineering, like a, a missile or intelligence platform or aircraft, actually came to the meeting expecting to find a sensitive foreign collection and reverse engineering operation, thought UFOs was used as a cover for that. So I said that, and they said they weren't that either. They had program manager talking, a craft, an intact craft they believed could fly. Space, air, water, dimensions. Was it from overseas or not? They said, no, could not be, not possible. Why, I asked. Where did it come from? Program manager said they didn't know where it was from. 
they had some ideas on this. It was technology that was not of this earth, not made by man, not made by human hands. <laughs> Said they were trying to understand and exploit technology. Their program was going on for years and years with very slow progress, uh, agonizingly slow with little or no success, painful lack of collaboration to get help from outside community of experts and facilities to assist effort must remain isolated and use own facilities and cleared personnel. Tough environment to work. About 400 to 800 bigot list count workers varying in number with funding or personnel changes. Miller, questions asked. These are the questions from Commander Miller. Roswell, craft, bodies, autopsies. Holloman, Air Force Base, landing. MJ-12 and leaked documents. Lonnie Zamora and Bentwaters, RAF Bentwaters in England. This is his answer. They were mum, declined to discuss these. Tom Wilson, I, I threatened to go to SAPOC to complain, gain access to their program. They said, go ahead, do what you must. I was angry because they defied my authority to be read in with good logical reason. Wouldn't budge. Their tone was very testy, terse throughout the conversation. Now, I have a new line here, but I just have to stop us for just a second. That was more than a mouthful. Uh, first of all, nice rendition. I wanted to just point out one thing to people. Um, <clears throat> there is one line in this uh, document that has been put in italics by uh, uh, Dr. Will, uh, Dr. Davis, who apparently uh, authored this. And it is the line that Ross said earlier. It was technology that was not of this earth not made by man, not by human hands. I mean, there it is in black and white in this document. So basically, the reason people are fussing and fighting about whether this document is real or not real is that if it's real, well, there you go. There it is in black and white. Uh, if it's not real, then, uh, you know, whatever. Also, uh, because I'm a uh, uh, kind of an aficionado of the MJ-12 documents, to actually see them mentioned in here in not a disparaging way, but as an authentic way, uh, really was quite a shock to me. So with having said that, let me get to the next line from Eric uh, Davis, who said, what was the outcome? Meeting broke up, I returned to Washington. What about Corso. And by that, we're talking about Philip Corso, the author of The Day After Roswell, which, frankly, I believe had come out right around the time that 1997 briefing uh, was going on in Washington. So what about Corso? Greer talked about Corso on April 9th, which was that 1997 meeting. Miller showed me the book during two hour private conversation. Didn't have time to read it through. Didn't buy a copy. Didn't bring Corso up at meeting. But comparing the Corso story to what I learned at meeting is more than enough to believe Corso told truth about seeing alien hardware, etc. Did you complain to SAPOC or SAPOC? Yes, called the subgroup members, senior review group members, to a meeting at Pentagon. Told them what happened at meeting. They responded that they would sustain the contractor on their access denial. So I ended up arguing with them a while, broke up in 20 minutes, and they would meet me in two or three days. Got the call two days later, near the end of June, and met again with senior review group members. When? Before last week of June, 97. 
They told me that they were sustaining the contractor, that I was to immediately drop the matter and let it go, forget about it, as I didn't have purview over their project. It didn't fall within my oversight, etc. I became very angry, started yelling when I should have kept my mouth shut. Miller and Greer said you nearly got busted. Close to that told Miller, senior review group chairman, said if I didn't follow their suggestion, I would not see director DIA promotion, get early retirement, lose one or two stars along the way. Really incredibly angry, upset over this, livid. Why such a big deal over this, considering the position of trust I have in the Pentagon? I do have relevant regulatory statutory authority over their program. That's my position. Is it because funding comes from you or through you or the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency? Core secret. Can't answer. Okay, back to the bigot list. Can you describe the type of people on it? Corporate types, scientists and technicians, engineers, scientists, managers, etc. Any military organizations that you recognized? None. Just OSDAT people and two on the Special Access Program Oversight Committee. One other Pentagon office. In December 97, Paul was out as the uh, OSDAT. He left the government. So was uh, Mike Kay, replaced two. By whom? Jacques Kanzler was the new OSDAT. Started December 97. Mike Kay was replaced by Brigadier General M. Ward from the Air Force. Were Paul Kay and Mike Kay and Jacques Gansler and General Ward the ones on the bigot list that you recognized? Won't answer that. Talked to Gansler in January 1998 about my June 97 meetings. He was briefed by someone, surprised me. What did he say? UFOs are real. So-called alien abductions, not real. Gansler said this. What else? Told to drop the matter. No more discussion about it. Were you willing to talk to Hal Putoff and Kit Green? Uh, I mean, we just, and then they went on and discussed who they are and the uh, remote viewing program history. Uh, Wilson was not familiar with the names, heard about the remote viewing program in 90. Uh, Maybe, maybe not for Hal, would think about it. No response on Kit Green. Prefers never to talk to anyone else about this again. Risks exposure. Better to stop talking. Cut it off here. What will you do with this? Now, I I actually think it's important at this moment, uh, Bryce, to make the point that I think this is an implicit admission that he's asking Eric Davis, what will you do with this? It sounds to me like he's looking down at a recorder, maybe a digital recorder sitting on the car seat between them. Or at least he's acknowledging that Eric's taking notes of some kind. But there's a reference. What will you do with this? I mean, you could, I guess, make the argument that by this, he's like this with this talk we've had. Uh, But I do think the recorder makes more sense, particularly based on how detailed this is. Anyway, this is the last uh, thing that Eric Davis uh, says in response to that. I'll keep it for private personal research data collection to track down the story and ascertain the signal noise in media and from government sources. We'll keep mouth shut, etc., etc. Told Wilson about Mary Elizabeth Elliott, the TRW story, Ingo's story, 
and the 1974 remote viewer woman who went to WPAFB trying to make a connection there. I think we'll wrap it there. Need to Know continues in a moment. I think we'll wrap it there, to be honest. Otherwise, yep. we'll get people bogged down in complications. But I just uh, suffice, suffice to say, Bryce, it does read like a transcript. Either that or it reads like a screenplay. So if it yeah. is a fabrication, it's a very, very clever fabrication. Well, here's the thing. For people that make fake documents, um, you usually, if you're making a fake document, you try to make it look like a real document. So if you were making, a, not to get too convoluted here, but if you were really just trying to make a fake document, the last thing you'd want anybody to say about your fake document is that it reads like a screenplay, mm. right? You'd want it you'd want it to be in a different format than if you were looking for it to be accepted. This looks to me as I, as I heard us reading it and read it myself a couple of times, like somebody who is literally just had a really impressive meeting and is desperately trying to write it all down. And I know because both of us, you know, have, have worked in the news and investigation business. I've spent my own time in cars uh, after I've talked to somebody and knowing how quickly my brain is going to lose the specifics and just stream a stream of consciousness, got everything down as fast as I could do it. I'm sure you have your own way, but uh, I mean, if you were in a situation where you had that long of a conversation with someone, what would you have done afterwards? I would have definitely recorded it with Eric's permission, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, with uh, Tom Wilson's permission. But I, I, I assume there's an implicit admission there that there's something going on that he's referring to. What will you do with that? And in my book, I, I speculate that he's pointing down at a digital recorder. But it is speculation. We just don't know. Other friends of Eric have told me that Eric has a phenomenal memory. But um, we should emphasize, I mean, I, I communicated with Admiral Tom Wilson for my research, and he's adamant that this meeting with Eric Davis never took place that no such admissions were made and that the memo is a hoax, that it's a fake. But uh, the well, reason why that. this is significant is because, of course, we know that Congress is about to hold hearings. And if there are going to be people coming forward, one of the people or two of the people that should be being called, maybe Commander Willard Miller as well should be being called, but certainly Commander Willard Miller, Eric Davis, and Admiral Tom Wilson should all be deposed and asked, did this meeting take place? What do you know? Well, and, and let's face it, Mike Gallagher, the congressman during the May 17th meeting provided uh, the, the, the hearings on, on Capitol Hill, provided, I thought, some of the most dramatic stuff by simply demanding that the uh, Wilson uh, Davis memo that we've just read out loud be uh, put into the congressional record. So if it's, uh, you know, if it's important, it wouldn't be really hard to to find out if this had reality to it or not. You really do just drag the people in and you put them under oath and you ask them these questions. Now, I, I want to emphasize I'm skeptical of the Wilson memo, and I have to be because neither Eric Davis nor Tom Wilson will publicly vouch for its veracity as a record of true events. But at the same time, there are a whole series of circumstantial reasons to take the memo seriously. And that's my position. My position is that we can't rely on anything the memo says. It doesn't prove a thing right now, but it should 
be being investigated. And that's what's heartening about uh, Representative Mike Gallagher's decision to put the document on the public record in the Congress, because it flags an intention that the Congress is going to take a closer interest in this document. I also temper my understanding of the document with the fact that I have spoken to people who purport to be knowledgeable about what they refer to as the program. And they assert that there is a back engineering, a reverse engineering program going on in the US government, which is actually conducted in part, mainly in private aerospace. So it's at least consistent with the drift of the Admiral Wilson memo that at some stage, the whole program was moved out of government, probably out of the Department of Energy and into a private aerospace company where it's remained for much of the last few decades. If it's a fake, uh, there would be things within it that, I mean, there would usually be things within it that were of questionable efficacy. So my question to you is, as I looked through it, I didn't see anything that I thought was wrong, that was a mistake, that was clearly uh, invalid. Did you? No, I didn't. And that's my gripe with some of the MJ-12 documents, is some of them are very obviously forgeries. You know, they've used... Uh, signatures from former presidential documents that are acknowledged as real documents. So I I have an issue, frankly, with the MJ-12 documents. You wouldn't hang a mangy dog, as we would say in Australia. Do you feel the same? Now, there is a whole collection of MJ-12 documents, and this is not... The earlier ones are more interesting. Yeah, the Eisenhower briefing document that was written supposedly in November of 1952 as Eisenhower had been elected and was being briefed into a program he probably already knew things about. That one reads pretty good to me. Uh, But again, there are things that people can take issue with. I'm not sure what you would take issue with in this thing factually, maybe stylistically. And again, just because I, I just, I think now it's more important than ever. Tell our listeners and viewers one more time how this document became public, how it ended up in an astronaut's garage after his death. Okay, the document was given to Edgar Mitchell, the lunar module pilot on the Apollo 14 mission, because Edgar was on the science advisory panel for the uh, National Institute of Discovery Science, which was funded by Robert Bigelow, the aerospace entrepreneur. And as part of a bundle of documents that came out of Edgar Mitchell's estate after he died... I'm very, very clear in my mind because I've spoken to the person who facilitated the release of those documents from Edgar Mitchell's estate, who was a very close friend of Edgar Mitchell. I am absolutely certain that the provenance of this document is very, very clear that Edgar received it probably soon after the 2002 meeting, allegedly, between Eric Davis and Admiral Tom Wilson, and that whether it records an accurate version of a conversation between Eric Davis and Admiral Tom Wilson or not, it was almost certainly brought into the fa- the files, the paperwork of Edgar Mitchell shortly thereafter, faxed probably by Hal Putoff from the National Institute of Discovery Science to Edgar Mitchell, and that Edgar Mitchell informed himself about the contents of that document and indeed referred to this meeting in numerous interviews that took place over the following years. And there is indeed mild corroboration of certain aspects of the conversation that took place between Eric Davis and Admiral Tom Wilson, which lead me to be more convinced than not that the conversation did take place. And and let me hasten to add as well, Bryce, that nobody should reflect adversely on Admiral Tom Wilson if he is lying about this. 
because as a security official who's responsible for preserving America's most important national secrets, if you are the holder of a security oath and you're bound by your security oath, and if this is a waived, unacknowledged special access program of some kind, as we suspect that it is, you are legally obliged to lie. Correct. And and I, I don't think anything less of them. In fact, if anything, as I first read this and as I heard it read um, just now by you, I I felt an emotional response to him. If this is the real thing and this really describes what he went through, let's all pause for a moment and think about that. Here is the guy who's in charge of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He is basically uh, J2. He's like the... Uh, He's at the top of the Joint Chiefs of Staff he, for intelligence. Yeah, he's the intelligence briefer for the Joint right. Chiefs of Staff. Okay, you know, so if there's anybody higher. who should be able to make the argument that, you know, if you're working on something, I'd like to know about it, and who's received the warm embrace of the U.S. government to be able to keep a secret, it would be Tom Wilson. And so his frustration in, in the reading and, and even watching the use of Eric Davis with the triple exclamation marks on some of these things, um, you just really feel how frustrating that would be. Imagine this is your job. You are supposed to be helping brief people about the security challenges the United States of America is up against, and there's a program you're aware of that they're confirming, and they won't read you into it. And, you're and more, importantly, more importantly, my friend, I think the thing that leaps out to me as a lawyer in that document is that the, the, the organization that is meant to be the sovereign of America, your Congress, which is meant to be government of the people, for the people, by the people, it's not briefed into this. Neither you is the president. why Congress is pissed. And same with the right. president. The president is not in on the I mean, for years, uh, we've been playing the game on these UFO podcasts where people go, well, what do you think this president knew or didn't know? And it's been an uh, you know item to be bandied about. In fact, I wrote an entire television series, if you will, about what a president knew or didn't know when I did Dark Skies for NBC. So uh, the idea that the president doesn't get told is not surprising to me, but to see it there in black and white is... Uh, is unnerving, if uh, if that's the right word, because uh, it does mean that there is another power structure uh, that is dealing with this besides the power structure that's supposed to be dealing with these things as laid out in our constitution. So it, it's well, um, more importantly, it's you can see you can see why the Congress would be worried about accountability. Yep. I mean, let's assume it's true. Let's assume that there is a secret back engineering, reverse engineering program going on inside the US government. I, I can understand, especially during the Cold War, the instinct to keep it secret, the need to try to preserve the secrecy of what, after all, is a momentous admission that the United States is in possession of non-human technology, advanced technology. But it's the issue that it hasn't been brought to the attention of the Congress that's the key issue. And if ever, if ever there was a national security issue that ought properly to be known by the Congress, this is it. You know, and here's your moment of Zen, folks, if you're listening or you're uh, watching right now. Um, let's all take just a second and consider this. Um, if there is crash wreckage, uh, it goes back to at least 1947. And according to some cases, maybe even further. If it's real and it existed, and if the phenomenon is authentic uh, and exists and is some kind of 
non-human intelligence that's interacting with us. If those things are true, we've gone eight decades nearly now, eight decades where a basic fact of how the universe operates has not been opened up and discussed with us. And the U.S. government itself now seems to have become blinded as the public has been. So just to pick up on what you were saying, Ross, I've always thought that probably it, I'm a believer that Roswell is a is true and authentic event, uh, more or less as it's described. And that I, I'm quite uh, certain that when Roswell happened, uh, it was a military operation. I mean, obviously, we just won World War II and the military gets it. And who's the president going to uh, uh, appoint to look into it? Military and national security people. But it seems clear if this memo is true, that what has happened over the years is the government itself has offshored a great deal of the research and the uh, work on this topic uh, to private enterprise, mostly aerospace firms uh, in, here in Southern California, where I am. And that's a shocker because what that means with compartmentation that happens with security, uh, we've been over eight decades blinding our officials more and more and more to the point where, yeah, you've now got senators like Gillibrand and Rubio waking up and going, wait a second, what's going on here? And uh, who can blame them? I mean, who can really blame them? Well, at the very least, it poses a question that needs to be answered. And we shouldn't be frightened of asking the question, even if it turns out that the memo is a hoax. At least it can be resolved. I don't think it is a hoax. That's my gut instinct. Yeah. We'd better think about wrapping up, mate, because yeah, we're, we're getting sure. pretty close to uh, a full hour here. And I know yeah. our audience have got better things to do than to listen <laughs> to us prattling on about a memo that may or may not be real. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that we may get answers to the conundrum, the mystery of the Admiral Wilson memo, possibly as early as maybe early 2023. Oh, man, that would be just shocking. Listen, um, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed reading that. I enjoyed hearing you uh, read it. And, it, you know, uh, the only criticism I can, I can throw at you, my friend, is what we say about actors all the time when they're doing a role – uh, with another accent, that they go in and out of their accent. Core so you, secret. <laughs> but, but nobody does core secrets as good as you. And by the way, core secret. I, I love that. You, I'm going to put that on. There's got to be a movie one day, Bryce, called Core, core Secrets. Core That's the secret. title of my next movie. Yeah. But let's end it with this. Let's tell people what core secrets is supposed to mean. What what is a core secret? The biggest secrets of all. The secrets so secret that if you reveal them they irrevocably compromise United States national security. And it, we can understand why a, a UFO reality would be a core secret. What do you think other core secrets might be? Oh, I can imagine maybe the ingredients to how to make a, make a, make a nuclear bomb. And, and let's just also say, Bryce, maybe also, what do they really know about the JFK assassination? Well, okay, now... We're, I know we're wrapping up, so I'm going to have to bring that <laughs> up this is one of episode because that one gets me going. I even wrote a book about it. So, yeah, we'll be back. Anyway, it's been fun. Uh, I've enjoyed this. We'll continue to follow this. And uh, let's just hope that as we get into 2023, uh, there'll be more answers than there are questions coming forward. Back another time soon with another episode of Need to Know.
Hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.